Hi there, and welcome to Healthy Public, a podcast exploring the social, political, and economic forces that lift and sink the health of people, communities, and populations. In the age of personal health, let's get public. So last week I introduced this position that I think we can do better when it comes to men's health priorities. I talked about what kills men, both of all ages, and young men specifically, and I found a kind of shocking distance between those big causes of death and what we think of when we talk about men's health issues. And finally, I got into this position that if we are putting money and attention somewhere, then we are putting it somewhere else that these efforts benefit some at the price of a greater number of others. The big point being, Movember is popular, really, really popular. I want to take a look at its history and its flagship disease, prostate cancer, and delve a little bit further into what that looks like, where did it come from, and I want to address that counterintuitive notion that the advocacy and what they propose may not actually be that good for men's health at all. That's what we're getting in today on Healthy Public. Last time we started at the end by looking at death, but today I want to start at the beginning with Movember's origin story. So let's take a trip down under and wind back the clock 13 years because we're making our way to Melbourne circa 2005. Don'tcha by the Pussycat Dolls was number two on the Australian charts, and here we would find two guys wanting to bring back the mustache and recruiting some friends to grow one out. And that's how the Movember contest was born, a combination of the Aussie slang for mustache, mo, and the month where they would have this contest take place, November. And in that first year, it was just about growing facial hair. It wasn't until that second iteration that the original competitors decided they needed something to give their cause legs. The founders of Movember looked at what women were doing around breast cancer, felt that some rough fundraising should be done for men's health issues. They talk about it in a 2011 TED talk if you're really curious. But in the end, they chose prostate cancer. Yeah, that was their vetting process. You know, women have boobs and they talk a lot about breast cancer and like, dudes have prostates, so let's make that like the men's health issue. There's definitely a lot to unpack about breast cancer and the pink ribbon and the war on cancer, but I'm gonna put a pin in that for now. Because I think the subtle difference I wanna look at between these two spaces is that breast cancer fundraising and advocacy, though tangled up in gender in various ways, doesn't really brand itself as being concerned with the totality of women's health issues. Breast cancer events are there to raise money for breast cancer versus Movember aims to better men's health overall, to stop men dying too young. They take on the idea of men's health and and they ascribe it priorities, seemingly without a great deal of consideration. And I'm definitely frustrated by that process, but I think there's a bigger point to be made, you know, beyond my consternation. And I want to look at what Movember as an organization actually has to say about prostate cancer. Because they describe themselves as not just a fundraising apparatus, but an awareness generating entity that creates spaces and opportunities for conversation. What do they fill in that space? What do they have to say? So according to their website, these are their big points on prostate cancer education. Early detection is key. 
and they recommend ask about being screened for prostate cancer at age 50 or 45 if they are black or have a family history. It's important right now to recognize, well, what is screening? Because I think it, it can get really tangled up in this idea of being the same as a diagnosis. It's not a diagnosis. With screening, you take totally healthy people without symptoms and conduct a test to see if they may have a certain condition. Screening tests alone do not produce diagnoses. So for example, if you took the screening test for prostate cancer, a blood test in this case, and it's positive, it doesn't mean you have prostate cancer. It means you might and more investigation is warranted. Versus what would normally happen when you're diagnosing a disease is, you know, someone goes to a doctor with symptoms and they explore those symptoms with tests and questions to try and figure out what might be causing symptoms. So with screening, there are no symptoms, people are totally healthy, but we're gonna go looking. There's something really intuitive and empowering about screening, at least I think so. It makes people, myself included, feel like we're taking control of our health, being responsible, preventing the worst. It feels rooted in this impulse that knowledge is power. And if we know, then we can act. That maybe we aren't so vulnerable in the face of the king of all maladies, that even as our bodies betray us, our cunning could be our savior. But not all cancers are made the same. For screening to work, it means that catching it early has some sort of effect on our ability to treat it or um, has some way of translating into increased longevity or quality of life. And I'm gonna walk you through the complexities of prostate cancer screening around the seemingly simple question, does it save lives? So there are really only a handful of big studies that look at a good cross-section of the population, randomly sort people to be screened or not screened, and then follow them to see if it made a difference in how they died or their longevity. We need them to be big because it decreases the risk that we'll miss any effects by chance. You know, if you were to reach into a bowl of M&Ms and pull out a handful, you might not have a blue one and conclude there are no blue M&Ms. But if you were to fool a pool with M&Ms, you would quickly be like, yeah, there are definitely blue M&Ms. We want these studies to include lots of different kinds of people. Because in real life, there are lots of different kinds of people. And if we want the study to be able to predict what might actually happen if we were to screen a whole population, we need the people in the study to reflect the people in our communities. And it's important that they are random, that people are randomly put in either the screening or not screening group. There's a lot of big statistical reasons why and a lot of uh, post uh, statistical posturing, I think, that goes on to explain why this randomness is important. But it's basically the idea that we want people to have an equal chance to be screened or not screened, because we want to try and perhaps balance out any differences between these groups that might affect the outcome. And ideally, we want to look at all of these studies together to use all the information we have to really give us our best bet at painting an accurate picture of what might happen if we chose to screen our population. So I think the group who's done it best, and there's been you know, a handful of groups in Canada and the US who've taken on this question, but I think those who've done it the best is the Canadian Task Force on Preventative Healthcare. Their whole goal is to look at information and say, what are the harms? What are the benefits? 
and what should we be doing given that information? So they looked at six studies that met these conditions that I list, talked about it before. They're usually called randomized control trials or RCTs. And they did some math based on them to estimate what it would look like if we did in fact screen a thousand men for prostate cancer. I posted a graphic on the website if you wanna follow along. It's a lot of numbers, so I find the visual really helpful. All right, so if we screened 1,000 men, so the, the vast majority, over 70%, are gonna test negative. Um, so we'll put them aside for now because they don't really enter what we might call the screening pathway. So they, they may not have any follow-up, they might choose to be um, screened again in a year or two years or um, you know whatever they may decide. And sometimes based on the, the reading from the blood test, it can kind of guide you as to how often you should be screened after that, or your doctor might have an opinion based on what comes back from your test, how often you should be screened. But for the purposes of our conversation, we're gonna put them aside. And let's focus on the men who test positive. So that's about 280. Of this group, over 60% of those are gonna be false positives. So upon further investigation, they are not diagnosed with prostate cancer. And of this group of people, the false positives, four people would experience complications from follow-up severe enough to require hospitalization. Oof. So this leaves the 100 people who would be diagnosed with prostate cancer or true positives. The true positives are kind of a complex group because we have the men who died anyway, even though they were screened, um, died of prostate cancer that is, and that's five men. And we also have the men who are saved because they got screened, and that's one man. And then we have this majority group, this a third of those who are true positives, who never would have known they had prostate cancer if they hadn't been screened for it. It wouldn't have affected them and they wouldn't have died from it. I know this is a super counterintuitive idea that you can have cancer and even have it for a long time, never know, and die of something completely different. But bear with me, it's related to some really key characteristics of prostate cancer. Namely that it's common and on average grows pretty slowly. A lot of men get prostate cancer. It is the number one diagnosed cancer of men. And when we look at the bodies of men who've died of other causes, 70 years of age and older, almost 70% of them are found to have undiagnosed prostate cancer. In health circles, it follows the adage, a lot of men die with, but not of, prostate cancer. That's because for most men, prostate cancer grows really slowly. Prostate cancer doesn't have a 95% five-year survival rate just because we are so good at treating it. It's also because we find a lot of these cases that wouldn't have been lethal in the first place. We call these cases overdiagnosis because they are diagnosed with prostate cancer, but their longevity isn't necessarily helped by it. So all in all, we see that screening changes the chance of death due to prostate cancer from six in 1,000 to five in 1,000. And depending on your value orientation, that might be worth it to you, but for me, I look at those 994 other men and I wonder, what did they have to go through? We have all the men who had a false positive and had to undergo more testing. And I know that sounds relatively benign, 
but four of those men will need to be hospitalized related to that further testing. With every procedure, whether it be biopsies or even blood tests, there are potential harms with varying risks, and that 178 men will be exposed to harm with no tangible benefit to their longevity. But even for the men who are true positives, who are diagnosed with prostate cancer, they are now faced with reality that it's not easy to know if you're in that one third whose cancer would have never bothered them and probably doesn't require treatment. And those in that 1% who can be saved because they were screened and treated. Knowledge is power, but power comes at a cost, choice. And we disproportionately increase our choices relative to our knowledge. We know more, but it's just sufficient for us to recognize that we don't know enough. So most men undergo treatment. If you've never seen someone undergo treatment for cancer, any cancer, I envy you because it's not pretty. In fact, it's ugly. It's often a race for the drugs to kill the cancer faster than they kill you. It's surgery, anesthesia, post-operative pain, risk for infection. In the case of prostate cancer, it can mean the loss of bladder control and erections. I hear this justification often that to save that one person, it's worth it to put others in harm's way. But some of those men might actually have their lifespan shortened by pursuing treatment. And at the very least, the experience of, and perhaps the quality of their lives dramatically altered. I think it's important to pause on these features of prostate cancer that contribute to Movember's popularity. Prostate cancer is very common, and the majority of people will live at least five years with it, meaning there are a lot of patients around to talk about it compared to a disease like lung cancer, to mobilize around it, to fundraise for it, and they have a call to action to amplify about it. Screening. The voices of the already dead only reach so far. Not everyone agrees about how the relative harms and benefits of prostate cancer shake out. Other people have done this analysis, other groups, and come to different conclusions. The Canadian Task Force on Preventative Healthcare looked at this evidence and concluded, no, we shouldn't tell men to be screened for prostate cancer. Not 50-year-old men, not 60-year-old men, not 70-year-old men. That improving one's chance by 0.1% is not sufficient when you have a greater chance at a false negative resulting in hospitalization, or worse, going through the long and brutal process of cancer treatment when you would have never been bothered by your cancer at all. The College of Family Physicians of Canada concurred with their findings, endorsing the task force guidelines, uh, as did the provincial and territorial governments of Canada. This evidence is why we don't see big formal screening programs run by governments for prostate cancer the way they exist for breast or colon cancer. But again, not everyone agrees. And the Canadian Urological Association vehemently I would say, disagrees with them. They did a similar analysis, though in my opinion, less rigorous, and came to the conclusion that they recommend offering PSA screening to men with a, with a life expectancy greater than 10 years, starting at age 50, or 45 for those considered at higher risk. 
So the same as what Movember puts forth. Um, if you don't know what a urologist is, I like to think of them as a gynecologist for penises in the associated urinary tract. Yeah, specialists. I have found in my experience that clinicians who only deal with positive cases and are only involved long-term with true positives, you know, those diagnosed with prostate cancer, tend to feel that we need to be more aggressive. And I might feel that way too if I only saw those true positives and not also the sea of negatives. I find people also bristle at my next suggestion for why specialists tend to be in favor of screening as compared to say family physicians or population health researchers, but I think it's a valid point. Specialists have a lot to gain financially when more people are put through the screening pipeline. It's not a moral assessment or to say they're worse than anybody else, but actually to say, I consider the same as anyone else. They have a lot to gain when millions more people are seeking urological care. And in Canada, if we screen men from age 50 to 70, it would be millions. I'm kind of on this note of money and medicine. I'm gonna read an abridged story to you from Dr. Otis Brawley, who until November 6th of this year was the chief medical officer of the American Cancer Society. And he wrote the book, How We Do Harm, which was what really led me to ask questions and think critically about prostate cancer fundraising and screening. And his story mostly centers on an American context and an American problem. So when he became the assistant director at the National Cancer Institute, he would go out and visit all these NCI designated cancer centers and they would do, as he puts it, a whole dog and pony show where they tell you how great the hospital is and how much service they do. So at one of these hospitals, uh, the hospital marketing guy explained to him the whole business model they had around prostate cancer screening. That if they went to a specific mall and they announced they would be screening the first 1,000 men over age 50 who rolled up their sleeve and said, please screen me, they would cash in on first the free publicity of that announcement. They're seeing increased business to their chest pain center, to their breast screening service, to their women's center. But more than that, if they screen these 1,000 men for free, they know that they're gonna have around 145 abnormal results and that they're gonna charge about $3,000 to figure out why each of the 145 abnormals is abnormal. And that's how they kind of fund this free screening. Now, the hospital marketing guy admitted, well, about 10 of them are not gonna show up. So now they have 135 men that are gonna have various procedures. You know, 45 will die from prostate cancer. And another percentage are gonna have radical prostatectomies, so they remove the prostate at around 30,000 to 40,000 a pop. Another percentage, they're gonna get these radioactive seeds, so that's 30,000 a case. Others are gonna do radiation therapy, and that's 60 to $70,000 a case. And he goes on. He talks about how many guys are gonna have incontinence so bad that diapers don't do it. So he has a business plan about how many artificial sphincters the urologists are gonna implant. And then he was a little apologetic because there was this new thing called Viagra on the market and that screwed up his estimates about how many penile implants he was gonna sell because of those who were upset about impotence due to prostate cancer treatment. This was in 1998. So Dr. Brawley said to him, well, if you, th if you screen 1,000 people, how many lives are you gonna save? 
And the guy took his glasses off, looked at him like he was a fool and said, don't you know? Nobody has ever shown that prostate cancer screening saved lives. I can't give you an estimate on that. The economic forces of screening made it popular and promoted long before the first face pubes pushed out in Melbourne in 2005. Prostate cancer has been elevated above other men's health priorities for a lot of reasons, but the economic interests that exploited our fears of cancer and our hopes to control it cannot be ignored. By pushing for screening, a lot of non-lethal cancers were identified and a big group of relatively healthy patients resulted. Uh, in Dr. Brawley's book, he goes on to talk about how this group of advocates who survived wanted to help other people. They felt that screening had saved their lives and they wanted to pass that edge onto others, their friends, their family, people they cared about, other healthy people, other people like them, people with insurance, people with money. See, that's the thing about the current state of men's health priorities. They don't just come at the cost of money not spent on men dying of lung cancer or overdoses. They've turned people into posters, marketers of a scheme that is just as likely to hurt as help them. They don't just hurt the men that die of lung cancer and overdoses. They hurt the men diagnosed with prostate cancer too. When we decide to undergo screening, I think it taps into our most visceral fears that we are not masters of our fate and our purest hope that maybe we can be. We think that with knowledge comes power, that by knowing we've gained the ability to make a decision. But as I've said, power comes at a price, choice. Now we don't just have to make one decision, we have to make a hundred. To quell our fears, we open a box with more questions than answers and actions that we don't know if they will maim us or save us. It's a lose-lose cycle that we're stuck in, that we were led into by the economic conditions created in America that were championed by some guys who wanted to grow mustaches in Australia. I think Movember kind of got lucky because long before they came along, the groundwork had been laid for prostate cancer to be pushed and for screening to be celebrated. It's easy to look at other people's health as distinct from your own, to see marginalized and oppressed people and think, well, at least it's not me. But we are inextricably linked. We can try to carve up our community at a global level using borders or a community level using class or behavior, distance ourselves from those others but it won't protect us. It hasn't protected us. Our collective priorities are important because whether we like it or hate it or deny it, they affect us. They can save us or sink us, and not some of us, all of us. This has been our second episode in a four-part series, and I hope you will stay along for the ride to hear our next episode on men's mental health. 
I want to thank Broke for Free and Chris Zabrinski for the music and Matt Ventresca for taking a chance on a random email asking to read his PhD thesis. Check out his work if you're interested in gender and sports or gender and prostate cancer advocacy. So much love to our producer, Jules LaPrairie. And if you have questions or want to contact us, feel free to visit healthypublicpod.com or you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at healthypublicpod. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.